Today there are three readings. Um, the first reading is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 18. You shall not commit adultery. The second reading is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but there is proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to a young, the young woman's father, because this man has given Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gates of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. But if, out in the country, a man happens to meet a young girl pledged to be married and rapes her, <coughs> only the man has done this. Only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. A man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. The third reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll begin together. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you that you love your people very much. You love your children very much, and you want to protect us from harm. Father, thank you that you are a good parent who does that. And so would we listen, and would we be moved uh, by your word to live wisely, so that we are protected from harm, protected from harming others, but flourish as you intend us to. Father, please be at work amongst us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the other day, I found myself in the car and uh, uh, on a drive, and um, uh, I listened to an online, pro- uh, online program, uh, a radio program. It was about dating, and um, it was slightly quirky, some of the things they said. Uh, there was a feature on um, seeking.com. Uh, I don't advise you to go there. As far as I could tell, this was a website for um, uh, older men uh, who wanted to find a younger man, a younger woman who wanted to find a sugar daddy. And it was pretty transparent about that's what it was. So you'd fill in all this data and you'd turn up at your first date if you were the younger woman with a spreadsheet and say, here are my financial needs and can you help? And uh, he might well say yes and obviously he would want something by reciprocation. And this is a good thing apparently. It is not. But the thing that struck me most actually was... um, not the polite prostitution of Seeking.com, was, uh, I think the thing that struck me most was the normalizing of uh, double dating or triple dating. And uh, the fact that people will go out, uh, young people date one person, two people, three people uh, at the same time, uh, just unwittingly uh, not letting them all know, not wanting to close down options. And uh, the discussion was how increasingly common this is. And... um, Maybe I'm old. That's a rhetorical question. (laughs) And you might say, some of you here, yeah, yeah, that's what happens these days. You go out with some person on Tuesday, someone else on a Wednesday, and, you know, just keep your options open until... That's not normal. That has never been normal. Culturally, in history. So the fact this is chatted about, yeah, yeah, that's what we all do now. Was the, was the gist of it. It is profoundly unhealthy. And if that's how you commence any form of romantic engagement, it's terrible. Actually, going forward, very unhealthy basis. A lack of honesty, lack of transparency. And fundamental to what we'll look at tonight, a lack of faithfulness. Because the Bible would say to you and me, be faithful 
in your relationships, all your relationships, actually. But here in particular, in marriage, be faithful. Or as the commandment says, do not commit adultery. Now we've had a break. Uh, we got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, four commandments left. We're returning to the ten words. The ten words. Uh, that's how they're described in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse thirteen. Not the ten commandments. Actually, they're never called that in the Bible. But they are uh, the ten words. Is how they're described. They're not laws. Uh, they're sort of broad principles uh, that help to shape the nation of Israel, and uh, uh, they're given biblically. And I have a conversation afterwards, I think given to you and to me as well, to broadly to shape the sort of people we become. They're a summary of the people we should be. They're very broad, they're not restrictive, in between, well they are, but um, they're broad principles in the sense of they're meant to keep us free. Here is, here is the area of life you can enjoy, says the Lord, and, and stay in this area. And if you go outside, well things can go wrong, but if there's an enormous, vast, vast galaxies of freedom you can enjoy. But it is best if you stay within the parameters I give you. Now you could complain, oh God's very boring and he stops me expressing my freedom. But don't do that. That would be an odd thing to do. Imagine it'd be quite a nice weekend, quite a lot of sun. Have you been up in the city, been up the sky garden? It's nice. Nice view. A uh, bit of lawn at that, well, unless you're um, scared of heights. Uh, but you go up there. But if you go up the sky garden, it's very nice, expensive if you want to drink, but um, uh, nice view. Well, here's what no one does. No one, when they get near the sort of wall and glass fence, no, wall, I guess it is a glass wall. When no, one, no one gets near the glass wall and says, well, who put this up? Who's put this up? What sort of boring people put walls up like this? It's just, it's just I just feel so restricted. You're just ruining my freedom. No one says that. Uh, people go up to and go, I'm quite glad this is here. No one complains, because why? In fact, if it wasn't there, whoever owns the sky, they'd get sued, and uh, they'd be negligent, and there'd be an outrage, uh, and particularly if someone fell off, it would be horrible. No one complains that there's a barrier around it. It's good. And in one sense, that's what these commandments are, certainly the ones that are negatively framed in Deuteronomy 5. We don't say to the Lord, well, you're very boring and very restrictive. We say, well, thank you for protecting my freedom. Thank you for protecting my life. Thank you that you care about my safety. Thank you that you care about my welfare. Thank you. Now I've come to the edge, I'm going to turn around and go and play in all the acres of freedom over here. That's what we do with these 10 words. They're negatively framed, but only because God cares. So they're negatively framed, you shall not, whatever it means, you shall not kill. Well, it's very boring, very restrictive. No, no, says the Lord, it's because I love life. I love your life. I want to protect your life. So I say, don't kill. Don't be so negative. Well, yeah, it's a negative that protects a whole lot of good stuff. Don't lie. Why are you controlling me, Lord? Why are you restricting my freedom? No, 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 don't think in those terms. I love truth. Relationships flourish where there's truth. Societies flourish where there's truth. Do you remember? Um, 
it's a good thing that God places these restrictions, parameters. It goes better when we stay within the rules, as it were. And so do not commit adultery. The Lord says, I care deeply about faithfulness in marriage. It goes better for you. Your life works better if you do it my way. And I really want that for you, says the Lord. So here we are, chapter five, verse 18, uh, is do not or thou, you shall not commit adultery. Now all of the 10 words, they have in one says a sort of narrow interpretation and a broader one that goes alongside it. Don't murder, fairly narrow interpretation. Don't take someone else's life unlawfully, but it plays off into lots of different areas. Euthanasia, abortion, just war. There's a sort of narrow interpretation also how it plays out. And this one is the same. Adultery, don't do that. Of course, the narrow interpretation, sex between a married person and someone other than their spouse. Don't do that. Don't break out of your marriage and have sex with someone not your spouse. Don't break into a marriage where there's a couple and have sex with one of them. You shall not commit adultery. That is, don't have sex with someone not your spouse. That's the sort of narrow and we need to think about that. But of course, it has broader implications for any sex outside of marriage. That's how it's taken in Deuteronomy 22. And of course, as some of you would have looked at midweek recently, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's right, don't lust. So there's a strict interpretation, or yeah, there's a narrow way of taking it. But it's going to have broader implications. And that's really how I want to look at it tonight. Okay, so um, adultery, why is it so bad? And we'll look at the narrow interpretation. What can it involve? That's the sort of broader. And then how can we be more faithful? Okay, so three things then about adultery. Why is it so bad? What can it involve? How can we be more faithful? First then, why is it so bad? Or another way of asking, why is the seventh commandment, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery? Why not, you shall not commit sexual immorality? That's a sort of broader term, any sex outside of marriage. Uh, but it's a narrow. Why go for adultery rather than just sexual immorality in general? You know, sex before marriage or whatever it may be. It's quite narrow. There is just something about adultery. So I don't know if you picked it up, you may have not actually in some of the language, but in Deuteronomy 22, if you commit adultery, it's the death penalty. Two, two examples, either adulterous or a couple, one is they're engaged, they're not formally being married, but you have sex with someone who's engaged to someone else, that's adultery, it's the death penalty. Oh, that's quite severe, isn't it? But if two young people have sex and they're not married... That's not the death penalty. They just have to get married to one another. Oh. So adultery is more severe than premarital sex, according to the Bible. Yes. Oh, okay. Why? One receives the death penalty, the other does not. Why? It's not super clear. There's something about adultery, though. In the book of Genesis, Abimelech tries to take Sarah, Abraham's wife, and the text tells us it's a great sin. 
And then a little later on, Potiphar's wife tries to have sex with Joseph, and we're told it's a great sin. There's something about adultery that is worse than other sexual sin. Seems to be this. Let me give you two things it seems to be biblically. Uh, the first is that it denies God's purposes. So in old, the Old Testament, Israel, um, the family then is established as the primary unit in society. The whole of life revolves around families. And if families fall apart, the nation falls apart. So that seems to be the logic, I think, in Deuteronomy. So it's severe. Did you know, in the UK, the death penalty was abolished in 1965. There were a few exceptions. Do you know the last exception only got abolished in 98? was treason. It's the last thing in the UK that you could uh, receive the death penalty for, treason. Which is interesting. Only 1998. I know some of you weren't born. But the um, uh, 98, it was fairly recent uh, in the scheme of things. Um, why is treason different from everything else? Because it's an attack upon the whole of the state, I think, I guess. And that's sort of the logic here in a Deuteronomy, adultery attacks the family, which is right at the heart of what makes the nation what it is. So therefore, it's very destructive. So I think it denies God's purposes. The other thing, a bit more time on this, it denies God's faithfulness adultery. So throughout the Bible, God chooses to describe his relationship with his people as a husband and a wife. That is, you might say, the most common metaphor, biblically, for God's relationship with his people. The whole Bible begins, Genesis 2, with a wedding. It ends, we had read at the beginning, Revelation 19, with a wedding. And uh, we have referenced, didn't we, Ephesians 5, familiar passage, where Paul declares that marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the commitment between Jesus Christ and his church. So however imperfectly, and it is deeply flawed, the husband in a marriage is meant to model commitment that Christ has for his church. And no husband does that perfectly. We're all deeply, deeply flawed. But it's meant to be that. It's meant to be a picture. So when you look at a good marriage, you're meant to go, oh, look, they've endured so much, but they're still together. They're faithful. So marriage is a visual aid. It's God's visual aid of his commitment to us. So uh, I don't know, we've got that photo, Andy. We've got that, uh, just for your amusement. Here we go. Can you see that? 20 years ago. 20 years ago. A bit more hair, yeah? Yeah, yeah all right, I'll say it first. Um, uh, 20 years ago. It's just a picture. That's a picture. That's a picture of my wedding day. Any marriage, there's enough of that. Any marriage, well, no, you know. Um, it's just a picture of God's wedding day when Jesus Christ meets face to face his people. And so marriages here and now are meant to point forward to that. The first marriage in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we're told, I'll put it on the sheets, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
be united. Uh, uh, the old translations used to have cleave. Uh, the, the, the man will leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife and become one flesh. Well, no one really knows what that means. Uh, united is okay. Literally, it's hold fast. Grab hold of, hold fast. So it's not a sexual comment. Uh, some of you looked at the book of Ruth recently. Uh, Ruth holds fast to her mother-in-law. It's a relational comment. It's commitment, holding fast. So Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Yes, there's a sexual element to that. Of course there is. But united, cleave, hold fast, faithful. So we'll sing uh, in a little bit while. He will hold me fast. My Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Christ does that. Our marriage now is meant to be a holding fast, united, grabbing hold of, and faithfully clinging on to the end. That's what it's meant to be, holding fast. It's the same reason, I think, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, an elder. What are the qualifications for an elder? They're only to have had one wife, committed to one wife. Because an elder is saying to the church, this is what God's faithfulness looks like, okay? Committed forever. That's what it looks like. I think that's what's going on there. Marriage is a union, just as we're united to Christ. Permanent, just as Christ's love is for us. Of course, it's why on a wedding day, you may not have noticed, but uh, you know, on a wedding day, uh, a couple, they say vows and then declarations, so the vows, will you take this man to be your uh, lovely wedded husband? I will. And when they say their vows, I will, I will. Um, when the, we will is the, uh, is the new one that comes up. But um, they're, the man and the wife, the husband, they're facing forward. At that point, they face forward because they're not declaring that to one another. They're declaring it to the Lord. That's the question the Lord asks them. Will you, hold, will you hold fast to this man for the rest of your life? Lord, I will. Will you? Yes, I will. And then, of course, they turn to one another. Grab one another's hands. And um, that's when you get the long bit, you know, the um, uh, will you take this for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part. You declare that to one another. But either way, I will. Not, I do. Because anyone can say, I do on their wedding day, I hope. Do you love this person today? I do. Well, thank goodness for that. It's going to go badly otherwise. Um, will you love this person in 20 years' time? I will. How can you know you'll feel that way? I'm not talking about my feelings. I'm talking about a declaration. I will. Even when it's really hard. Even when I want to run away. Even when I really hate them for a period. I won't leave, I will. But I will be there. And adultery then. If a marriage between a man and a woman is meant to picture the relationship between God, the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, adultery, adultery says God is not faithful. I am not faithful and nor is God. That's why it's so serious. Forgive me, this, this is a, 
uh, affiliated point in one sense. But this is why in Ephesians 5, you can't replace husband and wife with husband and husband or wife and wife. Because what does that say about Christ's relationship with the church? That he's equal? That Jesus is the same as the church? Jesus is interchangeable with the church? You see, if you change the nature of marriage, man and woman, you inevitably change what, who you think God is. Because marriage here and now is meant to picture what God is like. So you can't change the picture, you can't change marriage without changing how you think God relates to his people. Adultery, then why is it so bad? It's a great sin according to the scriptures because it denies that God is faithful in his love for us. Okay? That's adultery uh, explicitly itself. Now, what else could it involve? Let's pick up the pace. What else could it involve? Uh, secondly, uh, Deuteronomy 22, uh, even uh, back in the Old Testament, amplifies upon the seventh word, do not commit adultery. It includes sexual promiscuity before or outside of marriage, sex when engaged, rape. All of those things would break the seventh commandment, although, strictly speaking, they're not adultery. Because any sexual act contrary to God's word breaks the seventh commandment word. Of course, Jesus says that includes lust. A number would have looked at this midweek. Can we just put it up again, Matthew 5? Jesus says, you, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now let, let's hear those words rightly. Hopefully you looked at them recently. Lust is sexual desire minus holiness. Can we leave them up? Uh, Matthew 5. It's sexual desire minus holiness. Lust is the pursuit of sexual immorality. So we all have a sexual nature that's inherent to being human. To look at someone of the opposite sex and think, well, they're handsome, they're attractive, that's not lust. It's just an observation. I mean, you saw that photo earlier, no doubt. No, no, no. <laughs> 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, to look and say, oh, they're handsome, they're attractive. That's not lust. To, to pursue, though, that's different. To pursue scantily clad nude pictures on the internet, that is the pursuit of sexual immorality. That is lust. See, if you're doing something in the pursuit of sexual immorality, that's lust. It's sexual desire minus holiness. Sexual desire in the wrong place. Okay? So, uh, finding your boyfriend or girlfriend attractive is not lust. That should be normal. If you don't, 
there's a problem. Look, finding them attractive, that's normal. That's appropriate. I know, but snogging in such a way that increases desire for sexual immorality, that's lust. Because it's sexual desire without holiness. It's sexual desire inappropriately. You've raised the temperature too high. That's lust. Now, can you see what Jesus' command does positively? I think it's very lovely. Because it says to, well, let me put it in these terms. It says to women, the seventh commandment says, as Jesus interprets it, God cares very deeply for you and your bodies, and he wants to protect and honor them. And so in the an era of Me Too, of powerful men taking advantage of women, it's very, it's very wonderful to know, it's wonderful to know that our God is one who says, no, I want to protect physically, but even how men think mentally of women. It's a very protecting, caring word that the Lord Jesus gives. Men, women, we can exchange them over, of course. This does raise the question why Jesus is so strong about the need to take dramatic action. Cut off, gouge out. Well, lust, lust is a lack of faithfulness. It's Certainly in a relationship, it's a substitute for intimacy that should be there. So if you're married, lusting for someone who's not your spouse, that's a lack of faithfulness. Pornography, masturbation, those are just lazy sex. It's having an affair, emotionally, in a sense, physically. That is you and your marriage. That is dysfunctional. It's not right. There's something wrong. You want to address it. If you're single, lust is still a substitute for intimacy. Lust, remember, nothing wrong with normal. We all have sexual emotions, but lust, sexual desire in the wrong place without holiness. It leads to dysfunctional relationships. And you start to see this now increasingly generation of 20-somethings and older who don't know how to conduct relationships. People engage physically first, too quickly, and then emotionally can't really function in a healthy pattern. So Jesus says, don't do it. Keep sexual desire in the right place, at the right temperature. Why is it so bad? What, what could it involve? Uh, third and last. Uh, let's get a bit more positive, shall we? How can we be more faithful? How can we be more faithful? Three little things to say, uh, and then we're done. How can we be more faithful? Um, uh, the first is uh, this. Don't be deceived. Oh, let me give you them. Don't be deceived. Don't do it alone. And don't despair. Those are my three. Okay? Uh, first, then, don't be deceived. This matters. Jesus says, look, this really matters. If, you, if, if you're walking down this path, do what it takes. Not literally cut off a hand, gouge out a hand, eye, because if you do that to your right one, you've still got your left one. It's not that the right is... Not literally. He's saying, do what it takes. Paul will say, 1 Corinthians 6, don't you be deceived. 
you cannot carry on in sexual immorality, adultery, and enter the kingdom of God. You can't. You can repent and stop it, but you can't carry on in an unrepentant pattern and think you're a Christian going to heaven. You can't. It matters. What does Jesus mean, gouge out, cut off? It means do what it takes. What is it that sets you off? It'll vary. If you're married, who is it? Who is it you have flirty conversation with? Well, stop it. Who is it that you find attractive? Tell someone else, tell a mate. Don't tell your wife, that'll weird them out, or don't tell your husband, it's not helpful. But tell a mate. What is it that sets you off? Aimlessly staying up late at night? Opening the computer when you're bored? When you feel self-pity? Flicking up stuff? You know where it's going to go. Stop it. Jesus says, look, if you've removed the fuel, then lust can't burn. So within your own capacities, do what it takes. Don't be deceived. Don't do it alone. Single or married, we all need our friends. We all need help with this. We need help if we're married to have healthy marriages. If we're single, to you know, we, we just all need help. We all need help. Um, uh, my wife bought a card the other day, and uh, it said on it, uh, being married to you is like a walk in the park, dot, 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 Jurassic Park. We're coming to the marriage morning on the 27th of April. <laughs> That's, yeah. Do you know, why not? Why not? Um, 27th of April, have you got that in your diary? If you're a married couple, 10 to 1, not even the whole day. That would be a very, very wise use of three hours. Go for lunch afterwards. But a very wise use of your time. Uh, we do lots of, lots of marriage prep or stuff with people. It does us good every time we think about it properly. We all need help. We need friends in our battles. And if you're struggling in this area, you've got to be honest. If you know you're in adultery, about to commit it, you know you're in a pattern of sexual immorality of some kind, sex outside of marriage, Reach out, tell someone. The, the magic is broken when you tell someone else. All of a sudden, it's not so wonderful, not so exciting. You, you see what's true. Tell someone else. Do it this week. But even if you're further along, further, long way further back than that, we will have niggles in this area at least. Tell someone, be accountable. Uh, I find uh, when, not with a huge number, but with one or two of my closest friends, I say, go on then, com confess your sins to me. And uh, I'll say the true things and the safe things. Why I don't pray as much as I should. I'm not as kind to people as I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those probably are your two worst sins, Matt Fuller. But um, tell me the things you're embarrassed about. What don't you want to tell me? 
Tell me your sexual sins. And you sort of clench. And go, no, no, you've asked me directly. Um, I can't hide behind anything else. No, you can't do that with everyone. You can do it with one or two. Very healthy. Because we do need one another. And when you've done it once or twice with people you know well, it comes easier. First time someone says, confess to me your sexual sins. Uh, it's horrible. But once you've done it once, it's easy. With the same person. Be honest. We do need one another. I was down in Devon recently, and um, uh, walking along the beach uh, where my, near where my uh, in-laws live, and um, what a bird watcher, ornithologist. I couldn't give a hoot. Uh, that's not a pun. Um, uh, well, it is a pun, but it wasn't intentional. Uh, I don't care about, you know, very exciting, yeah, all good. Um, but all of a sudden, there was this group of people, they're watching all these birds, and um, it's like, all right, uh, what are you all so excited about? And they look at the buzzard. Apparently, that's a big bird. Um, no, even you know that. It's the bird of prey. It's a common bird of prey in, in the UK. So, and this was a big buzzard, apparently. Uh, Five-foot wingspan, uh, which is big. Um, and I look at the buzzard. And I was like, oh, why? Look, the seagulls are terrified of the buzzard. They're, they're, they're all scared that the, the, the buzzard's going to go after the young ones, the small ones. The buzzard has got massive weaponry. It's like a tank against a man on a horse. They've got no chance, the seagulls. But look what they're doing. It's like, you know, sometimes someone's you know, enthusiasm just sort of sucks you in, thinking, I hate bird watching, but I'm doing it. I can't believe it. <laughs> and um, I understand for some people it's a nice hobby. But um, anyway, then all of a sudden, for about 10 minutes, I was just watching this because it was fascinating. There's this buzzard, terrifying, terrifying buzzard. Uh, it was one of them, one buzzard flying around, and about 30 seagulls mobbing it, technical term, um, for us ornithologists. Um, mobbing it, so he'd just go, and they'd go, and so 30 of them would fly it at once, and you know, they'd even nudge it, and it would sort of veer away, and they'd come back again, and, you know, and they'd all sort of, uh, but then they'd sort of gather into formation, and go, uh, and I thought, that's the church. <laughs> I'm not wasting 10 minutes of my life, I'm turning this into an illustration. Because on our own, we are all vulnerable. But you confess your sins. You don't need to 30 people. I'm not saying that. One or two close friends of the same sex. Confess your sins. You're much stronger. Even the powerful weaponry of lust, you can resist. We're much stronger together. Look, over the years, there have been numerous men and women here at church who've committed adultery and uh, come through when they've confessed it. It takes time. It's always hard. But there's always possibility and many marriages have come through stronger. Look, over the years here at church, there have been numerous people who have had addictions to pornography And they've reached a point where they've confessed it. Just a one or two. The spell is broken. And they're able to move forward and make progress in that addiction. Look, when there's honesty and accountability, it helps. You can be transformed. Even in marriages, just with little niggles, 
every marriage has niggles. Be honest. Seek help. Chat it through. Don't be deceived. Don't do it alone. Third and last, don't despair. Don't despair. Because uh, uh, the Lord Jesus who says, gouge it out, cut it off, he does also, of course, offer forgiveness. Not every adulterer in the Old Testament is stoned to death, (laughs) uh, as is the death penalty. Take David, probably the most famous. Commits, uh, has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba is pregnant. He should be stoned to death. But he's not. He receives forgiveness. But two things do happen to David. Uh, One, his son Absalom, his grown-up son, observes his father's behavior and copies it. So a few years later down the line, Absalom tries to take his father's throne. And to make his point, he sleeps with his David's wife. Just says, yeah, I'm the man now. And so that's the first way that David does, there's consequences. But the second is the striking one. Closer to the time, David commits, has his adulterous affair. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you have done wrong. David breaks down and says, yes, I have. And Nathan extraordinarily says to him, and your child, the child that Bathsheba is carrying, will die. And you think, that's a brutal punishment. But in the scheme of the scriptures, there is David, the king. His descendant, son, dies so that David can be forgiven. And even back in 2 Samuel, it's just a hint. It's just a hint of what's going to come, that David's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, will die so that David could be forgiven eternally so that you and I can be forgiven eternally for all we've done wrong for our adultery, our lust for our immorality no penalty for us because Jesus has died in our place and he is the husband who never lets go He is the one who holds fast because he's faithful and he's promised to. So can I say, Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, don't commit adultery. Be faithful. As the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to you. If you've been on the receiving end of this, oh, that... That is a deep pain because it is a great sin because it denies who God is. He is faithful. He holds us fast. He will never let go. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, we pray against self-deception. Father, will we be those who are able to be honest 
with ourselves and with one or two others who are good friends, who we trust, would we be able to confess our sins because we don't want to come near this. We don't want to see how close we can get to adultery before it goes wrong, how close we can get to sexual immorality before we make mistakes. Would we be able to be honest with one another in order that as a church we are faithful, faithful to our relationships, where in particular, with this commandment in mind, within marriages, husbands and wives are faithful. And in doing that, Father, that is, of course, for our great good, but also a great encouragement to all around us, to a watching world, that here is just a hint of how you love us. We thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is faithful and will hold us fast until heaven. We praise you for his faithfulness. Would we be like him, we ask in his name. Amen.